Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. It's the beginning of another strange, unreal week, a time when every day is like Sunday, except somehow even less eventful. So why not start the week by talking about the end of the world? Apocalyptic thinking has been all around us since the end of the Second World War, and in the internet era, it seems to have intensified. Behind entirely reasonable worries about climate change, political extremism, the breakdown of democracies, resurgent nuclear threat, and the destruction of the natural world, there is, amongst some, a kind of relish for the end times. Why is this? Mark O'Connell is the author of Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, published this week by Granta Books. He won the Welcome Prize for his previous book, To Be a Machine, about transhumanism, and his new book explores the landscape of the end of the world. He visits Chernobyl and eco-retreats. He investigates billionaire bolt holes from Dakota to New Zealand to Mars. He charts the psychology of apocophilia and tries to find a little bit of hope at the end. And he's here with me today. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, There are are two notes of hope in the title of the book. Uh, It's an apocalypse, not the apocalypse. (laughs) And it's a journey to the end of the world and back. Did you feel you needed to put a bit of hope in there? Uh, yeah, actually, as is, as is often the way with uh, with books, the, the title was my own and the uh, subtitle was the, the kind of result of a, an ongoing conversation with uh, my editors. Um, so, yeah, the, the note of hope was, was seen as a kind of a necessary <laughs> counterbalance to the quite stark title. So, yeah. yeah, but there is some hope in the book. Yeah, yeah. There is. I mean, it is a fascinating read. And there actually is some very, uh, very amusing, bleak humour in there. But where, where did the impulse to write it come from? I mean, you, you describe yourself as loitering with intent on the fringes of the end of the world. Intent to do what? I mean, the, the book, I suppose, came initially out of this sense of sort of formless anxiety about the way things were going, about climate change and about the sort of uh, breakup of democratic global orders and all these uh ways in which the world seemed to be sort of sliding towards uh, chaos and, and the sense that there was something very dark on the horizon. And, um, that for me was sort of experienced uh, in sort of stark contrast to uh, what I was going through as a parent of a very young child, because, you know, as a parent of children, you, you kind of have to have some hope, you know, there's um, mm. a sense that you have to uh, instill in a child. Uh, an understanding of the world as a, a good place, a beautiful place, and uh, you know the future is a realm of possibility and hope, and, and that was very much at odds with things that I was seeing. You know, you, you open the newspaper and all you get is um, you know uh, a sense of the darkness on the horizon, um, and so I wanted to write about that, um, and I guess that sort of coincided with uh, a preoccupation with doomsday preppers and you know people who were building luxury bunkers and the super rich preparing for the collapse of civilization all those things were kind of obsessions of mine around that time and it it sort of it it became clear to me at a certain point that those obsessions were a way for me to write about my um my kind of you know underlying anxiety and the apocalypse as a as an idea kind of came into view then as a way that i could encapsulate all those sort of uh, various concerns um, so it is. I mean, the, the title is Notes from An Apocalypse, which does, I mean, it's interesting to, to hear you say that, that that sounds hopeful. I suppose it is. I mean, I guess the sort of one of the underlying points of the book is that, you know, it, it, it might be an apocalypse, but it's not the end of the world, you know, because it's, all, it's, always, some, it's always some form of apocalypse, you know, um, yeah. look through human history, there's always something. So. Well, that is the that is the the, the key strange thing is as a species we seem to be obsessed with it. I mean, you look back as long as recorded history is available, 
uh, people are expecting the imminent and immediate end of the world. Hmm. Uh, wh- where does where does this come from? Is it something hardwired into human beings? It it seems to be, or at least it seems to be, hardwired into our culture, into Western culture. Um, I. I mean, there are various theories about this. Um, a lot of them come from sort of religious scholars and, and so on. Uh, but it, it seems to me that the idea of the apocalypse allows us to um, put some shape on the chaos. Uh, you know, it's it's a kind of a you know, it's it's a it's a it's like any mythology or, or story. It sort of it it creates a, a container in which we can put all these kind of formless anxieties. And the, the idea of the apocalypse apocalyptic kind of a fervor and so on always seems to crop up during times of very rapid change of uh real uncertainty um times of war and plague and famine and all these things um i mean if you look at uh the book of revelation it probably tells you i mean I, i'm not a religious scholar but i think my sense is that it probably tells you more about the time in which it was written um mm. you know the the religious persecution and the sort of rapid uh, upheavals and so on, uh, than it than it would tell you about any uh, possible future. There's a great line in the book where you describe today as being all horsemen all the time, which made mm. me made me both laugh and be terrified. Right. Um, you completed you completed the book before the COVID nineteen emergency, which seems to be developed as this, as this kind of slow motion end of the world. Which you know, kn- who knew the apocalypse would be both terrifying and boring? How do you see the corona response in the context of what you researched? You know, how are we reacting to a real kind of game over scenario? Mm. Well, it's I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I say interesting as though I'm a sort of a cool, rational observer of all of these things. I'm absolutely not. And it's like, uh, you know, my, my main sort of response to this is it's a very strange time to be publishing a book. It's a strange time to be publishing any sort of book because, you know, bookshops are closed largely. And, mm. uh, uh, it's just a lot of uncertainty. But certainly to be publishing a book about the apocalypse at a time when the apocalypse is sort of the term on everybody's lips, it, it's a strange experience. And not one that I obviously would have foreseen. Um, but I think what's interesting is that, you know, I write a lot in the book about people preparing for the end of the world in various ways. And, you know, the book starts out with a kind of unhealthy obsession with um, doomsday preppers, who are people who kind of um, obsessively prepare for some kind of civil, civilizational collapse scenario. So, you know, uh, stockpiling foods and uh, preparing bunkers and, you know, bug out bags for sort of survival in the wilderness and so on. And these people are... I mean, it's a very interesting movement, for want of a better term, because they're very fixated on the idea of civilization as being extremely fragile. So, you know, um, they they might predict any range of uh, apocalyptic scenarios, um, including, you know, viral pandemic is a big one for them. And to be fair, a lot of these people might be feeling quite sort of smug at the moment with some <laughs> justification. Um, mm. But for them, it's, it's always... It's always society per se that is the threat. Um, so the the cause of the chaos might be, you know, a nuclear exchange or an attack on the uh, grid by terrorist hackers or whatever it is. But the real danger, the real sort of apocalyptic scenario for these people, is very often uh, civil unrest, and it's it's all about protecting yourself from protecting yourself and your family and your property from you know people outside and there's this idea that as soon as a a significantly serious crisis hits then civilization which is only ever very fragile and sort of delicate 
will immediately sort of collapse and people will sort of revert to savagery. And so they were, I mean, they're right to predict these kind of catastrophes happening. You know, if you, if you stick around long enough, some kind of pandemic will probably happen or something, you know, uh, but where they've been proven wrong, I think is, is in that, um, commitment to the idea of the fragility of civilization because you know with, with some exceptions obviously we see images of people uh you know panic buying and fisticuffs over toilet roll in the supermarket or whatever although we're seeing that less i think now mm. um certainly in the early days but I, I think really what you're seeing is <clears throat> the strength of civilization actually in most cases you know you're seeing people clapping for emergency workers and medics and so on you're seeing um people by and large acting or not acting as the case often is in a, you know, out of a sense of collective self-interest, um, a sense of a common good, which is very much at odds with the sort of doomsday prepper view of of the world and of humanity, is basically sort of a few few catastrophes away from savagery. Yes, you, you know what? Three missed meals away from the warriors. Um, right. What, what one thing I thought really leapt out about the preface description is, fan, you know, it's you know fantastically uh, you know, detailed exploration of the weird, the psychology of these people. You know, the kind of the, their go bags and their religious fixations, and they're they're all men, weirdly compliant wives. And you describe it as the overwrought performance of masculinity that utterly failed to conceal the cringing terror from which it proceeded. I mean, they are all guys. It's our old friend toxic masculinity again, and they're massively racist as well. The, the kind of the code of civil unrest and urban civil unrest they're almost always talking about black urban america aren't they yeah certainly in the american context i mean i don't want to tie them all with one brush here because you know i, I mm-hmm. do create some space in the book for acknowledging that you know people who i who i know and people who i sort of casually meet often turn out to be preppers but when i'm talking about the sort of uh the committed doomsday preppers and the sort of um, people who are obsessively kind of, you know, uh, consuming the prepper products and making YouTube videos and so on. Yeah. Their, their anxieties are very often uh, racially encoded and, and not very heavily racially encoded either. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a real, um, they tend to set off like urban populations, which already is, you know, you don't need to be um, a sociologist yes. to sort of, yeah, um, against, uh, you know, rural populations. And the, and the fear is uh, large, you know, densely populated urban areas becoming unstable and violent and civil unrest breaking out and people, you know, uh, coming out into the countryside. And they, and they fear, uh, you know, riots and uh, what, what they call, that, they're big on acronyms, these preppers. So uh, mm. the, the sort of preferred acronym here is, W-R-O-L, which stands for without rule of law. And this is the big fear where government breaks down, uh, you know, uh, police is is no longer an effective um, force for whatever reason. And you have a sort of a Wild West scenario where you have like gangs of roaming savages and, you know, uh, people banding together to protect their communities from them. And, you know, I say it's a fear, but what I try to get at in the book is the extent to which this is actually a fantasy. I I say in the book that preppers are not not just preparing for their fears, they're preparing for their fantasies. And it seems to me to be um, very often a racist fantasy and a fantasy that uh, harks back to the sort of mythology of the Wild West, of the kind of um, lawlessness of that time, you know, every man for himself. Uh, And it is, it's a very masculinist fantasy, this idea of uh, protecting yourself and your family uh, and your, your, your stuff from you know, the kind of savages on the outside of the compound or whatever. It is, it is kind of weird that the guys who hate government are terrified of government breaking down. 
I was also fascinated the degree you just mentioned they're all about the products and you, you find this bizarre kind of food preparation thing called new manner as in manner manner from heaven new with an nu obviously it's like kind of a huel for neo-nazis or something these guys seem to want everything mil spec you know it's, it's right. the fact that it comes in a large chunky package i mean i've i've been in certain of these supply stores and you see mil spec lip balm mil spec shampoo mil spec mm. Toothpaste. I, this, these things don't need to be mil spec, but of course, <laughs> right? Toothpaste is fine. Pack. Any kind of toothpaste is fine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's a wartime toothpaste. Yeah. But you yeah. know, the idea that you're kind of buying into a complete sort of branded lifestyle message to yourself is quite fascinating psychologically. Yeah, and it's like it is very much a, a sort of a consumer subculture in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of the videos that I got quite fascinated with were about kit. You know, people sort of displaying their latest purchases and you know this knife is very good for this and this is a slightly better product or you know this uh, brand of um sort of reconstituted protein sludge or whatever it is will get your family through the apocalypse better than this other brand mm -hmm. or whatever so it's very much a, a kind of a consumer uh, movement in some ways and you know what yeah. what you're seeing now is like sort of luxury prepper brands propping up um you know, oh really? So it's higher for the for the better class of paranoid secession. Uh, yes, yeah, because you know, to some extent, prepping has gone a little bit mainstream with the with the viral pandemic, and so you're getting like um, a sort of a higher end. Uh, you know, Instagram influencers peddling these uh, you know ready made luxury bug out bags and, and so on. Um, so it yeah, I mean, it, it definitely uh, it sort of intersects with uh, underlying trends of, of consumerism and so on. And, and that's what's so interesting to me about it is the way in which these sort of phenomena that can seem quite extreme and out there often reflect underlying tendencies in our culture to begin with. And, you know, I, I, I guess it was a, a similar kind of fascination in my first book with transhumanism, which also seemed, you know, extremely kind of out there and, and sort of sci-fi-ish. Uh, I was interested in it largely to the extent to which it um, reflected uh, sort of the, the ways in which we're all a bit crazy about technology. And, and this is a sort of a similar thing, I think. But the crossover there is both phenomena are essentially misanthropic. It is a dislike of other people and possibly even yourself. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know that I would go so far to say that about transhumanism, although there are certainly elements of that within it, and certainly the sort of radical life extension movement within transhumanism tends to be about just, uh, you know, um, the, the sort of uh, investment in, in the self uh, to a very mm. radical degree as against other people. Um, but certainly, I mean, doomsday prepping is, is radically misanthropic, I think, and that's and, and to, to it to, I think, a pretty serious fault uh, because, you know, uh, I do feel that that, that underlying ideology of um, society itself being the threat has been shown up quite quite strongly over the last few weeks. Of course, preppers would say, well, just wait, it's early days. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, that's the yeah. thing with apocalyptic cults, isn't it? It's always early days. It's all, right. you know, the, the, the apocalypse is always just around the corner. And, never quite and that's arrives. why it's, you know, it, that's why it's so compelling because, you know, uh, part of the book was I, I visited uh, a sort of a luxury apocalyptic uh, real estate um, salesman in, in South Dakota who was, you know, this was very much part of his pitch was that, you know, uh, it might not be this thing. It might not be the virus. It might not be nuclear exchange with North Korea or whatever, but it, it could be the next thing. So, you know, and, and there are, you know, rationally speaking there are any number of threats that could bring us down that could bring down civilization or wipe out massive numbers of people i mean it's very hard to argue against that 
Um, yeah. So it's 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 a quite a potent sales pitch. The apocalypse uh, as a as an idea is uh, is very compelling. Well, speaking of radical life extension and bolt holes, a huge part of your journey is reporting on Peter Thiel, the big data billionaire who uh, you describe him buying up huge chunks of New Zealand for the end of the world that he and his mates are kind of causing. Um, Thiel is suddenly in the news for his company Palantir's involvement in tracking people around COVID for the NHS. You know, he is a fascinating and a bizarre character. He's almost like a supervillain. He's almost like something out of Marvel comics. You know, devotee of the sovereign individual sort of anti-democracy thing, freedom and democracy are no longer compatible. What hmm. you know, what kind of world does Thiel want? That's very much an, o- an open question. He put, I mean, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. So, you know, hmm. I never spoke to him for To Be a Machine and I certainly didn't speak to him for this book. Um, he... He puts a lot of ideas out there. He's a, very much a sort of a person who thinks out loud and likes to be provocative and so on. But it seems to me, so I, I got very interested in um, his advocation of this book, uh, The Sovereign Individual, which is um, co-written by two authors, James Dale Davidson and uh, Sir William Rees-Mogg, who's, of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg's his father, that former editor of The, of the Times. Um, and this book is like, uh, it seems to me to be, very much an apocalyptic text. Um, it predicts the sort of imminent collapse of global democracy. And it's, it's a sort of a guide to how to thrive and survive uh, as, as a sort of an investor and how to protect your investments and sort of uh, profit from, from this chaos. And Thiel is a big sort of believer in this book. And it's a, it's a radically kind of libertarian view of the future. Um, and it predicts the rise of what they call the sovereign individual, who is this sort of um, very wealthy, very powerful person who is not answerable to any state, uh, any state or government, uh, and just kind of creates their own personal kind of sovereign realm. Uh, and Thiel is a big sort of advocate of these kinds of ideas of, um, you know, democracy being a thing of the past, of the future belonging to a very small number of very uh, powerful and influential and very clever uh, clued in people. And so he's kind of advocating for this sort of post-democratic future uh, in a way that is, uh, I think, you know, could be seen as explicitly apocalyptic. And yeah, so I I sort of got very interested in the intersection between that and his interest in New Zealand as a country, as a place where the collapse of civilization might be survived. And yeah, he bought like a huge chunk of land uh, down in the South Island in New Zealand. So I went down there, I met up with a couple of um, people who had actually who had read my first book and were working on um, an art show based around some of the ideas that uh, that book threw up and uh, various other texts and ideas. Um, and yeah, they, they were sort of similarly preoccupied with Teal. But you're right, he is sort of a, uh, a, an almost like a, a movie villain type figure. And that's what's interesting to me about him is that he, he functions for me as a kind of a symbol for um, the kind of uh, sort of heartless uh, voraciousness at the heart of, of capitalism. Um, he's very much a kind of a, a Kurtz-like figure for me. Hmm. But the, the, to me, the interesting, one of the interesting things that leapt out from the book was whether you're Peter Thiel or you're a prepper eating ready meals in a basement, it's, it is fundamentally narcissistic. It's all about you. It's you, you are at the center of the story and there's something kind of almost adolescent about it in that, you know, the, the basement prepper is fulfilling 
the stuff that he's absorbed from pop culture. And he's kind of, you know, we've all read those memes about these sad guys who uh, saying, you know, while you were out dating, I was practicing hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> while right. you were going to rock gigs, it's I was exactly learning that. how to gut a deer with my teeth. Right. All that, it, it is a kind of, it's a, t- it's a teenage boy's vision of the world. It is. And it's, yeah, like it's deeply misanthropic and it's deeply kind of, um, it's, you know, it's also quite wrong, you know? And I think like one of the sort of underlying sort of threads of the book, you know, it's not a polemical book by any means. And I'm not sort of retailing any kind of argument. I'm not looking to convince people of anything so much as just explore things. But I think if there is an underlying idea in the book, it's that it's not the the building of bunkers or the, you know, um, the building of walls that's going to protect us in times of crisis and catastrophe. It's, it's, it's very clearly to me community, you know, mm. and interesting, like there's been some ironies around this, of course, for me, like when this started to happen, um, the virus, you know, I went through uh, a few days a week of sort of, you know, I guess panic. And I, you know, I bought a lot of prepper books for research when I was writing uh, notes from an apocalypse and I found myself sort of taking them down off the shelf and, and flicking through the indexes with, I would say like something other than the sort of ironic scholarly interest that I was reading these books (laughs) with, you know, in the first place. Um, And there was, you know, there was a period when uh, my wife and I sort of discussed like, well, should we get it? You know, we live in Dublin in the the, uh, city center and uh, we were sort of saying, should we maybe try and rent somewhere in the country or get out of town and be somewhere like, you know, out in the open where we might be safer and, we kind of talked about this for a little bit and then we just sort of realized, you know what? We have a community around us here. We're, you yeah. know, we're in a city. We have like, it's a vibrant community. People sort of look out for each other. Um, people know each other. There's, a, you know, businesses that people support and so on. And this is all really important and, and it's proved to be a kind of a, I don't want to say a lifeline because we're basically, you know, we're fine, but it's, it's, you know, psychologically it's proved very comforting to just have your neighbors and sort of friends and, uh, you know, just yeah. fellow sort of, dwellers you know around you um yeah. so i think that's something that that you know the sort of prepper worldview whether it's you know guys you know putting together bug out bags or peter teal hiring a private jet to go to uh new zealand or whatever it, it, that that's a that's an aspect of all of this that that, that does not take into account mm. are you a, a, a you know a recreational reader apocalyptic fiction at all because the book reminded me quite a lot of there's a couple of key William Gibson ideas that popped up that, you know, what the book reminded me of one from his recent books about the jackpot, this concept that mm. like, it's not a, it's not like a new a super volcano or an asteroid that's mm. going to end things. It's just a lot of little things all join in hands. It's like an, an economic crash in this part of the world and an ecological crash in another part of the world. And, you know, it all adds up. And another one was a line from Count Zero where he writes that the exceedingly rich are no longer even remotely human. I mean, when I said William Gibson, then you went, Hmm, mm. <laughs> are you, reader of this stuff um you know obviously i'm sort of uh, you know you can't avoid gibson he's sort of a huge aspect of, of all of this sort of discourse and a big sort of part of the culture i i was never a big reader of him i, I read um neuromancer actually for the first time hmm. when i was writing to be a machine because I, I was never a big sci-fi reader actually ironically enough um and i kind of went on a bit of a crash course when i was writing to be a machine uh, I, you know i've always enjoyed apocalyptic narratives uh, to some degree um for me i, I guess uh, the, the big person for me in terms of like fiction writers and the apocalypse would, would I would say be Don DeLillo actually um, hmm. someone who's I mean I, I think of uh, his I guess it's his most recent novel um, Zero K and the first line of that book is everyone wants to wants to own the end of the world I think that's the first line and it's it's very much about you know 
capitalizing on uh, apocalyptic chaos. Um, and yeah, Delillo is, is someone who I keep going back to for sort of insight into these quite apocalyptic times and how our sort of personal fear of death intersects with these grand apocalyptic sort of imageries that we get from the culture. Um, so I haven't, I haven't read a lot of Gibson. I, I've read Pattern Recognition uh, years mm. and years ago and uh, Neuromancer, as I said, quite recently. Just in closing then, I mean, you're very clear from the very beginning of the book that the end of the world is your fault. You know, it's our fault. It's, uh, you know, air travel, consumption, just doing nothing about the things that are around us. I think what the line there is, I am the apocalypse, I prophesy. Mm. It's kind of our doing by neglect as much as commission. But you do end on a, on a kind of a note of hope. How did you get to that note of hope that perhaps, you know, it's not, it may be an apocalypse, but it's not the apocalypse? Yeah, I mean, that's at the sort of central question of the book. And it's also like the hardest one to answer for me because it, it was no one thing. I mean, you know, I could, I could sort of shape the narrative into a fairly straightforward trajectory from, you know, the beginning of the book in which I'm writing about a time where I was sort of maximally anxious about everything and just couldn't see a way in which it was possible to live with a sense of meaning and purpose and, and raise children in, in a world that seemed to be on a collision course with catastrophe and just extreme darkness to a point uh, that I write about towards the end of the book where I've reached a kind of, um, I will, you know, it, it's hopeful, but it's quite tentatively hopeful. There's a kind of a stoic acceptance in, in the mood at the end of the book that, you know, I deliberately ended the book in a way that mirrored the beginning. So the beginning of the book is a scene in which I'm watching uh, images of a, a starving polar bear sort of uh, try to feed himself out of a trash can in the, somewhere in the northern uh, Arctic tundra while my son is watching a, a, a cartoon about a, a, a cartoon bear and his sort of uh, girl companion and trying to square those two things and, and this real anxiety that arises out of that uh, and the end of the book is you know things are no things are no different in the outside world you know it's, it's just as dark but it ends with a moment of just my daughter blowing a raspberry at me as I'm reading uh, an article from the Guardian to my wife up from my phone about the collapse of insect populations and uh, how that's, you know, ushering in possibly the, the uh, collapse of the entire ecosystem. So it's still dark, but also there's a note of like, actually, I'm, I'm here with my family. I'm here with my daughter. I can't give in to despair. And I think where I got to was an ability to recognize the darkness on the horizon and not ignore it, but also not have that completely overshadow life in the present and life with my family because you know I, I think where i land with the book is that we just don't know what the future brings often that's a really mm. scary thing and you know the last few weeks have shown that we just don't know what's what's around the next corner and you know i certainly couldn't have predicted this maybe a lot of epidemiologists could have predicted this but i certainly didn't see this coming and most people didn't and so that can be dark and, and scary but also there's a sense of like possibility we don't know where the solutions are going to come from. We don't know what good things might be in the pipeline. And I think you have to have a sense of that as a parent. You have to keep in mind the sense of like the future being open-ended. And I think that's part of what, part of why we have children is to, mm. to keep the future open, you know? Yeah. So it's a very tentative hope, but there is some hope. It's it, it's a tentative hope, but it is some hope. Mark, thanks for getting up so early on what is still technically a bank holiday, although how can we tell anymore? To talk yeah, to us. Weirdly, it has been a pleasure talking about the end of the world. Same. Thank you, Andrew.
Notes from an Apocalypse is out this week and bookshops are still delivering, I believe. Uh, everybody out there, thanks for listening. Please do follow us on Twitter at bonker underscore pod to find out what else is going on with the podcast and to let us know what you think of it. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. In the wise words of Idris Elba in Pacific Rim, we are cancelling the apocalypse. See you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>